Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. It's Bruce here and I hope you're all well during these peculiar times and hopefully getting the chance to play some golf. Don't forget you can get in touch with us at Cookie Jar Golf and that's on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We do very much enjoy hearing from you all. Today, Tom and I are joined by Jonathan Yarwood. Jonathan is a teaching professional ranked in the top 100 in America by Golf Magazine. He began teaching in the UK and moved to the US where he worked under David Ledbetter and he's worked with winners at every level, including 2005 US Open champion Michael Campbell. We recorded this pod a couple of weeks ago and it was great to get Jonathan's take on the return to live golf, the Tiger Phil match, his career in teaching and also some interesting opinions he has on the current state of modern golf instruction. So without further ado, I bring you Jonathan Yarwood. Watch this. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. How um, how are you finding the lockdown period? Uh, well, compared to what you guys are doing in the UK, it's a little different here in America. It's, uh, there, it's a lot softer lockdown, I would suggest. Uh, people are not taking it quite as seriously as you are there. I think the message from the, the top with Mr. Trump is uh, not as strong as it is from Boris and not as well organised as it is from Boris. So, um, yeah, it's OK. I'm, uh, you know, I'm used to being busy and being out there. I'm not out there as much as, as normal. But I tell you, my online lesson stuff is absolutely on fire. Um, I'm up 700 percent on those things and uh, really enjoying helping people wow. from all over the world and seeing some funny sights. Actually, you know, I'm seeing people, you know, whacking drivers in their living room with a missus on the couch next to them watching TV. I've a guy in a paint shed hitting it into a into a bloody mattress, you know, all the way down to one guy who's got a swing catalyst force plate studio. So. Uh, I'm, see, I'm seeing a gambit across the board, but uh, really making some good progress in it and enjoying it and get some really good feedback. So uh, from that perspective, it's been good. I also think it's been great. I don't know how you guys feel personally, uh, Tom and Bruce, but um, you know, I think it's been great to slow down a bit, to be honest, and, and, and reboot, restock your life a little bit and um, you know, just have a little think about you know, the direction you're going in and stuff like that. Um, so I've quite enjoyed that, that introspection period as well, actually. Yeah, you obviously work with a lot of tour players and, and up-and-coming junior players. Do you think it's been a, a much-needed sort of rest period for them, giving them time to reflect and maybe refine some of their, their goals? And... Yeah, I've been talking to a few players. I had Lee Westwood on uh, one of my podcasts, Robert Rock, and a few of those guys. And, um, you know, it's a very strange period for them because you think about it, they're used to being on the road, right? And their families are used to them being on the road. And all of a sudden, they're not. <laughs> they're at home like a normal husband and a normal guy. And I tell you what, there, there has to be a, a, a decompression period there for them. And you just wonder, you know, if, if some of them think, okay, this is how life should be. Because, listen, on the road's tough. It's much tougher than you think. Um, you know, you, you get the, the guilt of being away. You get the absent father guilt and all the other stuff. And all of a sudden now, you, you stay in the family bosom, as it were, and, uh, you know, it's interesting how, how different players have reacted to that. I think we're obviously quite a long way in now. We're, we're a couple of months into this pandemic and, and, and kind of gently coming out the other side. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, yes, yeah, it, 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 some guys, I would say, have reacted in, in certain ways and some in other ways. And I would say they're all chomping at the bit now to get out there because the, the missus is probably having a go at them a few times now. <laughs> a, few, a few arguments flying around. But, uh, yeah, it's been, I think it's been in good uh, for the, good for the amateur players as well. You know, a lot of the players I work with have still kept kept practicing. You know, they've been in the garden, they've been in, on, on the range, on the golf course, uh, kept things uh, trucking along, been doing lots of online stuff with lots of different people. So, um, yeah, I think uh, again for everyone just to kind of reevaluate and also the, uh, the one of the big things for me and I don't suppose 
I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. You know, losing sport on TV, you know, it feels like a big hole in my life, right? It does me. You know, I like, yeah. watching, I like watching the football, I like watching the rugby, I like watching, you know, whatever's going on, tennis, like getting excited about Wimbledon coming. You know, all those mile markers have disappeared, haven't they? And you, it kind of leaves you a little bit bereft, really. So I've been killing YouTube. You know, I've been re-watching British Opens and Wimbledons and um, actually been watching a lot of Mike Tyson, actually, strangely enough. I know that's a really random thing, but I've... I, I, all of a sudden started having a massive interest in Mike Tyson's career. Yeah. What a bloody athlete that guy was. I know he's not a great person, but, jeez, what an animal at one stage. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot of variety in it. I don't know what your thoughts on it. Well, I think it's quite interesting over here. I think, um, for me, as someone who got into the game not a phenomenally long time ago, what they started doing on Sky is they've been running a lot of uh, really, well, not really old, but sort of old competitions going back to the 80s or 70s, a lot of reruns. And it's quite nice to fill in some of the blanks of history that I think that I had, which is quite useful to me in a way, because they've obviously had to try and put content on somewhere. And um, that's been quite useful, actually. But I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's bit, the, the absence of live sport is, it's just tough, isn't it? But hopefully um, June is for the PGA. Is that right? Is that what you guys are hearing? Yeah, they're going to come to Arbor Town, where I am, as second, uh, the second tournament of the year in, in June. I don't think there's any spectators, but uh, they're going to come into town. Uh, they probably won't after they see my video of, of, of the non-lockdown in Hilton Head, but uh, we've got 125,000 hits on, on Twitter. Um, but uh, I know Lee Westwood probably won't because he, he commented on it and went, hmm, don't think I'm coming to that one. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, very interesting period. And, uh, you know, I think it makes you appreciate all we had and, and what we will have in the future and hopefully you know everyone will remember that remember this period where we, we lost all that and, um you know now we can watch it again and get it back and uh, the other little thing i've been doing as well with uh, with live sport i've been having sevi fests all the time as everyone knows i'm a big sevi fan that, that, that's his shoes behind me actually um gave him a lesson and he left, left his shoes behind and uh, he said i could keep them um, so I've been having some Sevi fests and uh, been in bits up one of them. You watch a documentary about Sevi's life on YouTube. Bloody hell, there won't be a dry eye in the house there. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible story, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think Billy Foster telling telling the story of him punching himself in the face yeah. and making him, yeah. his nose bleed, I think yeah. at Wentworth, where it just shows you what a what a character he was. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of great content out there on YouTube and certainly with stuff like Sky back yeah. here in the UK that has been keeping us pretty occupied. You mentioned there you're based at Hilton Head yeah. um, in South Carolina. Perhaps for our listeners' benefit, perhaps you could give a um, like a potted history of your career in, in golf instruction, you know, big, beginning back in the UK and yeah. going from a PGA pro to, yeah. you know, traveling across the globe and finally settling in the US. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a pretty ordinary uh, player as a kid. You know, I scraped into the PGA level. Uh, got interest in coaching very early on. I got uh, exposed to some good mentors in the UK. I, I uh, hung around with a girl called Helen Dobson, who at the time was one of the best amateurs in UK history. She won all four amateur majors. I used to dabble around helping her a little bit, and then she went off and won a P an LPGA event when I was like 21, 22, something like that. Uh, and and that got me to go to America with her to train in the winter. Um, uh, we happened to train at Lake Nona with David Ledbetter, 
Um, I've got a Miley David, you know, I, I, I used to keep a file of facts. That's how old it is, this story. I used to keep a file of facts. And in my little file of facts, I, I, I drew stick figures of how I thought the goal swing should work. Okay, posture does this, start does that, this does that, this does that. And I wrote it all down, like page for page and little notes and, and stuff like that. And then I went and saw David at Lake Nona. And uh, he'd just come out with a book, the, the, the Goal Swing, which, you know, is a seminal book about, obviously, uh, how to swing it good. And uh, it kind of matched my philosophy, really, and a lot of my ideas, really. Some of the pages were, were absolutely verbatim. Um, so we got on really well, and he took me under his wing. And, you know, he's, he's definitely one of the, the best people in golf, in my opinion, and he's one of the best best people you'll ever meet, never mind in golf. And he's always been great to me. He's looked after me. I've spent hours and hours and hours with him. There's so many myths about him. You know, oh, you're a lead better coach. You teach a lead better method. That's absolute crap. He teaches a thousand different swings in a thousand different ways to a thousand different players, and he's a very creative and artistic person. And uh, yeah, so uh, I worked w- with him for a while, and then I went down to a- an academy down in Florida called IMG Academies, which was a hot house for juniors. I was teaching um, players on on so many different tours, colleges. I was so busy when I look back at that time. I was in Australia one minute, and then I was on a college tour, and then I went to the PGA tour, and then. You know, all this it kind of just was manic, really, that I couldn't do at this age. Um, and then uh, I coached a U.S. amateur champion, which was a big deal. Then I coached another U.S. amateur champion. And uh, Michael Campbell came back and forth a little bit. And I co- he won the U.S. Open. And it kind of snowballed like that, really. I had a lot of success. I was very fortunate. I'm only a bit part player in the background. I've, uh, someone once said to me, I'm the best coach no one's ever heard of. And I was quite proud of that, really, because to me, it's not about me. It's about them. It's not about my ego. It's about helping them. And I think too many people do it the other way around. It's too much about them and not enough about the players. So I was quite happy to be in the background and just keep achieving success and and, and just getting good at what I, what I thought was good at what I do. And, um, yeah, just kind of went from there. I coached five USGA champions. I coached a winner on seven tours around the world. You know, geez, an amateur number one, a junior number one, you name it. I've kind of been there and, and done it to some extent. So... I've enjoyed going around the world. I've travelled all over the place. Jeez, I've been to 40, 50 majors. I've coached on almost every continent around the world, and I've gone around the world on someone else's dollar and often in a private jet. So that's pretty good from a county state in Skegness. I came to America with a suitcase, and that was it. Wow, that's uh, that's an incredible story. I mean, you mentioned there you, you obviously coached the whole sort of gamut of of, of players from you know, obviously uh, the, the up-and-coming juniors who are perhaps just starting out in the game and then maybe eventually they want to try and get a college scholarship as well as the sort of established players who, who come to you having already played the game at a high level. Does your approach to teaching them kind of vary depending on whether you've kind of got a blank canvas, as it were, in the case of a junior versus someone who you're kind of maybe trying to capture, recapture some of the, the things that they're no, doing in that make No, definitely. Great. You know, when you get a player, let's say you, I, Michael Campbell came to me, he was 300 and something in the world, he's on his, on a, in a slump, you know, like a lot of players were. You know, that's a totally different approach to developing a kid from 11 years old to the tour, which I, I've done a few times. You know, that's the long-term athletic development's a little bit easier, actually, because you can create performance by design. You can build the player how you want. And, you know, the reason there's such strength in depth nowadays is because, you know, with the advent of modern technology, you know, when I look at someone's swing, I use fact, not opinion. So I've got 3D motion plates going. I've got a pressure plate going. I've got vertical, horizontal and torque forces running. I've got Trackman going and I've got video going. So I can get a 360 view of someone's swing from a factual perspective without any guesswork. And then I can evidentially improve it and change it again with no guesswork and no opinion. Um, so, you know, long-term development's a little easier. When you get a guy who's 
on a slump or, you know, a, a little bit in what I call golf hospital, you know, then you've got to be a bit more of a surgeon. Sometimes it's microsurgery, sometimes it's psychology, sometimes I, what I do with those type of players is always look back at what they did when they played their best. I spoke to Sean Foley about it when he was helping um, uh, Willett. Um, and he said, look, I, I, they were trying to get him to go this way with the track man and try and do this, try and do that. And yet when he played his best, his path was four to the right. His angle of attack was was, was one down or whatever it was. I can't remember the numbers. But, um, you know, so a lot of the, the top guys do that. They look back at what worked, what you did right, and why did you change it? And then with the hospital guys who are in, in rehab, you know, there's a big psychological element as well because they've often got some big scar tissue, you know. And, and it's so easy to get in a slump on the tour. I mean, it's incredible that the spotlight these guys are under, which is why I never, ever, ever in any sport criticise anyone who's playing that game on TV, whatever sport it is, because I'm sat on the couch and they're not. They're giving it a go. They're in the arena. They're exposed. And we would, we're never in that position. You know, I'm not exposed. Well, to some extent I am, but, you know, most normal people are not. And so you've got to give them great admiration for, for taking the pressure uh, and being able to, to perform when they need to. So the approach are very different. And each uh, just, just to close on that, the, the approach of each person within those approaches is different. It's a case-by-case basis. And the older I get, the more into it I get, the more of a bespoke approach it is. Well, just jumping in before we turn on to Michael Campbell. Um, did you happen to catch the uh, the Tiger Phil match that was on uh, the other day? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? It's interesting that you say that you've got to respect the guys that are putting themselves out there. Obviously, Tom Brady isn't a professional golfer. He's an outstanding athlete and a professional American footballer. Um, what, as a coach, when you're watching that, how do you, how did you see sort of the swing changes that he made? Obviously the first six holes, uh, wasn't, wasn't playing great. And then all of a sudden he just starts striping it. Um, what would you, if you had the op- opportunity to say to him, you know, do something in your swing in the first six holes, what would you have said? I think, listen, there are amateur players playing in, in front of millions of, of people in a sport they don't really know. Right. So, you know, they're bound to be nervous. So, I mean, obviously, I think Tom Brady's got a great little golf swing, personally. I wouldn't have told him anything technically. You know, he's obviously got a little toolbox of things he uses. And, you know, I think he has to have been nervous, no matter – he's just a human being. You know, he's in front of Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and all these all these players, not in the arena of comfort that his sport is. So, again, massively respect uh, what they've done there. And it must have took five or six holes to settle down. It has to have done. And you saw how good he was, um, you know, when he when he hit that shot that was kind of spun back into the hole, and you know, it's cool as cool as you like. That was, and that's what you want, made for TV. That was, wasn't it? Well, it was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? Because yeah. um, obviously, you can see how his guile came through because he was starting to get in some shit from Chuck on over the uh, over the earpiece, and he's yeah. he's there saying, "Oh, Brady, you're you know, you're not doing well at all," and he's yeah. just sorting one back into the hole. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was a proper shot, wasn't it? You know, they're, they're ballsy people, aren't they? Again, they're just great athletes. They, they're used to performance and they're used to, you know, they've got something different, I think, just through experience more than anything. They can turn things on and turn things off. I mean, if, it, if that was me and I was playing with Tiger and Phil in front of all those people, I'd, I'd top the first 14 shots. I know I would, you know, be so nervous. It'd be ridiculous. And it's so easy to forget that. And, you know, some amateur swings are a little bit on a knife edge timing-wise here and there, and you throw a little bit of heat on it and it, it kind of crumbles a little bit. Um, which is why, you know, great swings like someone... Ironically, one of the greatest, most talented players was playing in front of you there on that thing uh, from a compensation in the swing perspective. Yeah. Phil Mickelson. My God, I slowed that thing down the other day. 
that thing's on an absolute millimeter knife edge of going sideways. And yet every time the pro tracer straight down it, you just think, okay, that's some of the best hand-eye coordination on the planet right there. And it really is. I think Grant Waite said that, um, you know, in all the years he was out playing on tour and even now as the established coach he is, Grant Waite reckons that Phil Mickelson's got the best hand-eye coordination of any golfer who's ever lived. Yeah, there's no question about it. And obviously the, some of the strongest mentality as well. You know, he's, he's a really good guy, Phil. I, I really like him. And, um, you know, he's a very intelligent guy, actually. And he, uh, he makes a lot of money away from golf. What he makes on the golf course is a lot of money, but compared to what he makes elsewhere is peanuts. Uh, really? He's a real finance guy. He does all sorts of stuff. So, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Um, yeah, but incredibly talented. But I, I thought it was great to see um, Tiger swinging so nicely still. You know, he looks like he's moving all right. GC drove it well. You know, you can tell what they've been doing in lockdown, and it's not sitting on the couch, that is for sure. Mm. yeah when you look at tiger obviously you know you've been around the game for for a long time and seen seen him up close going through his various iterations of his swing when you look at someone like tiger do you think it's more a case of just keeping the body in shape and and actually playing a condensed schedule and being sensible that's going to lead to the success for him rather than any kind of mechanical or technical deficiency well well, he's actually yeah no i'd agree i agree he's got to keep his body in check and he, he spends most of his time on prehab than anything i would suggest um, but he has done some really nice changes in his swing. Um, it looks so much better than it used to. You know, he's, he's, he's losing. People say, oh, he loses a lot of height in transition. Well, he does. But it's a good thing if you're pushing into the ground and then you rotate and jump out of the ground at the right time. It's a really good thing, which is why he hits it so far. But what he's done is he's managed how much he, he loses height. So he's not overdoing it. Um, and then he's really rotating nicely through the ball compared to what he used to. He used to get very tilted this way with his yeah. shoulder, so he never really got out of his own way, so he'd hit it all over the place with his driver. Now he looks so much more level through it. He's got less mm. side bend. This is the technical day for it. He's got a little less side bend with his driver, a little less forward bend in transition, um, and uh, it's looking really clean, and I, re- I really like it. And, um, you know, that guy obviously is a talisman for our game, in my view. You just have to look at the the the, uh, the amount of people who watch the game, who are outside the game that he brings into the sport, which is the most important thing. You know, he brings a fresh audience every time. He just brings a sport lover, and out of those five million sport lovers he brings to every telecast, hey, you might have a hundred thousand go and give it a go, just because of him. Yeah. So you know that guy's done more for the game than anyone. So it was great to see him uh, looking so sharp. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see him out there, but I totally agree with you, with you, Bruce. You know, he's got to really manage his schedule, which he does. He's got to manage his body, which he does. He's surrounded by experts. But, uh, you know, hats, hats off to his coach. You know, he's, he's got a coach in the background. And, again, he's, I like him because he likes to keep really quiet. He doesn't want anyone to know what's going on. You see him every now and then on a telecast, but no one ever talks about it. He's like this mystical ghost. And uh, he's done some great work with him, I think. Do you think if he manages to keep his body in check... Um... We can get majors, majors sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen done. Well, of course, definitely, and we talk quite flippantly about it. But you've got no idea how hard it is to win a major. Obviously, I've coached a player that won a major, so I know what goes into it. And the, the conditions those guys play under, and what you see on TV, just they don't correlate. You know, I'm, so many times I've come back from an event and watched the last weekend round or whatever it is on TV, and I've gone, "What? That? What? That looks so easy." And yet when you're there, you go, okay, this is pretty much impossible, this shot, or that hole is almost impossible to play. Or I remember standing on the uh, tee at the US Open, and I've never seen a narrow fairway in my life, and there's like hay on either side. I just thought, well, you can give me 100 balls, I'm not hitting that fairway. No way. And you go, you go to Augusta, 
and you see how ridiculously fast the greens get. In my view, it's, it's, it's almost Mickey Mouse at times. I mean, they, 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 they've got a sub-air system and they fool the players on a Wednesday. They think, oh, yeah, they're pretty fast, like 14 or something. Then they put the sub-air on, and, and so on Thursday, they're, they're going purple already because they've sucked all the moisture out overnight. They're another two faster. So, you know, it's uh, you just got no idea how tough those majors are. So to win them is amazing. For us to flip it and say, oh, can he win the Hey, there's no question about it because – um, but it's not an easy task. Um, but uh, if he can stay healthy with his mentality and his experience, which really is the, the essence of how you win a major, really, it's guts and, and brawn at the end of the day is how you do it. Um, you know, he's got that in spades, hasn't he? So, uh, you know, it's just unfortunate some of the players have brought up in that era of Tiger. <laughs> his domination's really mm. affected their tally, hasn't it? Um, which is unfortunate yeah. for some of them. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 I definitely think he can, Tom. I think, uh, you know, it'd be, if, he, if he gets out of the gate, you never know. I, I thought it'd be quite interesting this year with the pandemic that they might condense all the majors together. But I, I don't think they have, obviously. But it would have been quite interesting to have, like, a major and then three weeks later another one, then three weeks later another one at a weird time of year. Because um, if someone got hot in that period, because players, obviously, they get hot. They get hot and cold and... They, they play well about six weeks a year, but you got someone who's hot in that three week period, like Rory or someone, they'll probably win all three. Yeah. You know, mm. it's been quite an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, just diving into the Michael Campbell story in a little bit more depth. I mean, um, you know, Michael turned pro in 1993 and he had a great beginning to his European tour career. I think he won six times between 99 and 2003. Um, and then 2005, he starts the season with with five missed cuts, I think. And there's this phenomenal story of um, him going to Walton Heath the first year that they held the sectional qualifying. And um, I was lucky enough to be at Walton Heath a few months ago in, before the before the lockdown and see the plaque they've got up there in the clubhouse, just talking about, um, you know, Campbell holding that six-foot putt on the last green there just to get into the US Open. And obviously, he goes on and wins it at, at Pinehurst on a notoriously difficult setup. Could you just like give us a bit of an idea of what it was like, you know, going into that that event? Um, I guess on the back of that that kind of unfortunate run of form, and and how things developed as the week kind of progressed. I mean, he's always been uh, an up and down player. It's as simple as that. It's just his mentality. You know, he, he he's, a, he's a fight or flight guy, and you know when he when he wants to be a warrior, there's no one better in the world, uh, as he proved. But when he loses interest, which some of them do, it's like, hey, I can't be bothered. So it's just his mentality. It's just how he was. So he's always going to have a roller coaster career, which he did. Uh, he won 15 times around the world, though. And the same year in the US Open, he won the World Match Play, which is the biggest check in golf. So mm. he kind of cashed out that year quite nicely. Um, and I think there's a school of major winners who you know can deal with it and can't. And I think he struggled a little bit with some of it. Um, but, um, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, um, it was an interesting period. He came to that tournament, um, as you say, missed a few cuts. He came with a, a broom handle putter, actually, um, which was really unusual because he's normally historically a very good putter and he'd been hitting the ball great, he said, but he said, my putting's gone, my putting's gone. Like somebody's like panicking, like they've got the yips or something. Mm. And again, I, I used to, so what I did, I took him away from the venue, which we often do actually, and Tiger does a lot, which people don't know. We go away from the venue because there's so much crap that goes on it's so distracting you can't get any work done so we went to a golf course down the road called pine needles oh yeah and uh, it's yeah. very quiet there there was no one around the, the pro letters out on the putting green and again i use a facts-based uh, evidence-based approach to, to things and took the emotion out of it first of all i spent a lot of time with scotty cameron at the time and so we were doing a lot of ball performance filming 
And so I did. I just said, okay, let's film the ball and your stroke with the broom handle. Let's film the ball and your stroke with your normal putter and see if there's any benefits. So we did. And there was no benefit whatsoever, and it was slightly worse. So that took that out of the equation. So then he's like, okay, well, it's not going to help me. Look, there's the facts. And then I just rebuilt his normal putting stroke, which had deteriorated, and got the ball rolling how it should roll. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. It's number one putter that week. And then, you know, course management-wise on that golf course, I figured out um, in the practice rounds that, hey, it's a Donald Ross. They're up, the, the, the bowl-shaped greens, they're going to be rock hard and fast. No one's going to hold the green. No matter how good a shot you hit, you're not going to hold at least 50% of those greens. You could hit almost a perfect shot and roll off the green. So then I said, right, okay, so that's what's going to happen, Cambo. There's your expectations. Right, let's let's plan on how we're going to create a really artistic short game around this type of green. So we fiddled around with different shots. You know, we started off trying to hit hybrids up slopes, which didn't work, and then we hit three woods up slopes, and then we create, if you look on my, my social media feed, some, some of the tour player shots that I've actually shown on there, which really transcend and, and fly in the face of, um, you know, the conventional ways of chipping and stuff like that. There's ways of increasing the spin loft, the dynamic loft to really burn a chip um, with very little uh, risk. Uh, there's a lob shot on there, which is a, a no-risk, no-brainer lob shot, which goes up your nose nearly, and you'll never mishit it. Um, you know, so there's, there's lots of very artistic and creative things we put in that week. And then from a mental perspective, my, my mental side uh, with him, we didn't have a psychologist with us that week, but he has worked with them, um, was once you got going quite nicely, was just to say, look, you're under the radar. Everyone expects you to screw up, so don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about yeah. it. And then all we talked about the whole week was, you know, there's 18 flags, 18 tees, anything else, you're bringing that to the table. And you can you can diffuse it. If you're aware of it, you can diffuse it. So we just totally kept reminding, okay, 18 flags, 18 tees, 18 flags, 18 tees. And listen, that'll work for someone in the monthly medal. You know, if you get distracted and you, you start thinking about the, obviously not the monthly medal, but uh, with the TV, but you might think of the TV, you might think where you are in the field, you might think who you're playing against. 18 flags, 18 tees, mate. Get on with your process. Your process is this, this, and this, and stick to yeah. it. And, you know, I was really pr probably one of my proudest coaching moments was when he was on 15 in the last round. Um, there's a massive tiger roar. Tiger was in his prime. Everyone was scared of him. And there was a massive tiger roar ahead of him where he just made birdie, and he was coming at him. And Camo's literally over his shot, and he backed off, had another practice swing, walked in, and hit the shot to about 15 feet, five iron. And at that point, I thought, right, okay, that swing is technically robust enough to stand up to the biggest, strongest cold running golf. I was really proud of that. Yeah, that's an, that's an incredible story. And, I mean, to hold off a charging Tiger Woods in his prime, I guess the the emotions on the on the 72nd green there, or even just before then, as you kind of sense going down the last with the three-shot lead, I think he had. Yeah. Um, that must have been quite a cool moment in your coaching yeah, career as yeah, well. Yeah, well, I'll tell you a little story about that in a second. But, uh, yeah, his caddy had a really uh, important uh, bearing on that, actually. On the, on the 71st hole, uh, the par three, you know, it's, it's seven iron normally. Uh, pin was uh, back. You don't want to hit it long. And his caddy saw he was amped up, right? He could tell he was amped up. So he said, hey, I'm going to give you eight iron here. So he just said, look, trust me. And he, he, he gave him eight iron. He nuked it. He hit it He hit it uh, where it needed to go. And, uh, you know, the, the, the rest is history. He made birdie there, and then off, off he was running. So, uh, yeah, you know, all power to him. And then I had the best week of my life that week because I had a new child, uh, Michael won the U.S. Open. I got a nice juicy check. 
and then he called me and said, Jonathan, I know you've always wanted a, a Porsche. Go out and buy yourself any 911 you want, and I'll buy it. So wow. you, can't wow. get better, you can't get a better week than that. So, uh, yeah. So in a broader sense then, Jonathan, how do you see um, the professional golf tuition as a whole, really, uh, having changed you know, in the process of your career? I mean, particularly with the abundance of new information that's available out there. I mean, you mentioned launch monitors, the 3D biomechanics stuff, force plates. Uh, do you think coaching on the holes improved quite a bit since you've been around or has the standard of play improved as well? Well, I don't think the standard of play has improved enormously because golf is intrinsically a difficult game, isn't it? You know, there's so hmm. many um, so many things that make it difficult. Um, you know, it's a static ball. That's the the toughest thing about it, there's not many sports that you can think of that have got a static ball where you provide the propulsion, the elevation, and the direction. I mean, yeah. snooker's a static ball game, um, but you're not trying to launch the ball in the air and that, you know, so you're just using spins and stuff. So, you know, and then you've got the game within the game, haven't you? You've got putting, chipping, bunkers. It's so multifaceted, and, you know, that's why it hasn't improved massively the amateur level, uh, the club level, let's say, but the elite amateur level has improved enormously. And, and the, the professional level has improved enormously. And that's really through, you know, the advent of really good practice. It's easy to share good practice. And I don't mean hitting balls practice. I mean, good practice in, in all the different areas. So, you know, it's easily shared on the Internet, isn't it? You know, I, if I'm, mm. the stuff I used to know with Ledbetter 25 years ago is unique to us. No one knew it. It's like, it's like the magic code. It's like you had one up on everybody. But nowadays you can go and Google it. You can go and figure it out. You can go to a seminar about it, you know. And you can get armed with good information. So I think coaching across the board's improved, and there's no doubt about that, at the elite level and the professional level, which is why there's such strength in depth. And then, again, you, you, you're taking um, a lot of the guesswork out with using modern technology, using the sort of approach that I do, which is a fact and evidence-based approach, which we talked about earlier, um, you know, and, and, and really, you know, take, taking the opinion away, really. But at the end of the day, you know, golf coaching, in my view, especially at the, the elite level, is, 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 is part art and it's part science, right? Mm. You know, a track man is not going to make you a great player, but a track man in the hands of a good coach might really improve your knowledge of how to make that ball go better. So when you're under the gun, you've got a little fear or a little, yeah. oh, if, I, if I do this with my shoulder, geez, the angle of attack goes up three. I know that. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, well, you've used technology well there. So, you know, at the end of the day, you're still it's still man management. It's still artistic to, to, to at the delivery you know i pride myself on the fact that yeah i've got all these things at my disposal track man blah 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 blah. but no matter what i'm doing with a player i'll never give more than one piece of information on the way back and one piece of information on the way down and if you really know what you're doing those two pieces of information will change the track man numbers they'll change the force uh, points you know we, I work a lot on precision, really making the force uh, work at the right right point, the horizontal force, the torque force, and the vertical force to maximize people's distance and the video as well. And if you know what you're doing, those two little words, the two little artistic feels or whatever you want, want to call them will make a big difference to an elite player. Um, but at the at the club level, you know, you know, the show goes on as normal really, doesn't it, to some extent? Mm, yeah. But it's a whole, whole different ball game. I think... There should, you know, the bifurcation uh, debate, in my view, you know, what's wrong with letting Mr. Habercam or Mr. Club Captain having a driver that goes slightly further than it should do? What's wrong with that? You know, I don't, I don't see what the problem is. It's definitely a problem in, in the in the professional game, but in the amateur game, Mr. Club Captain could have what he wants. I think. It's interesting you just um, 
mentioned about the feels. I mean, it's it's a very different thing knowing what's wrong with your swing and then fixing it. And often it's actually a bit of information that's not directly related to what you think is wrong. Um, do you find that with the coaching? That it's a certain sort of feels for a certain player and yeah. what you're trying to say might be the same thing, but they're different feels. Yeah, it's a case-by-case basis, but you know, a good coach that's worth his salt will, will understand the, the laws of cause and effect, right? So it's like, okay, the, the pass doing this, the angle of attack's doing that, the face is doing this, the strike point's doing that, the dynamic loss doing this, the spin loss doing that. Okay, that's the effect. All Trapman shows you is the effect. It doesn't show you the cause, mm-hmm. right? You've still got to fix the cause. Okay, so what caused that dynamic loft to do that, the spin loft to do this? What, why is the torque force going too early? Why is the, you know, why is there too much horizontal force? You know, so, so your role is to be like a detective and go, okay, well, that, that, and that's happening, but it's caused by this, this, and this. And like you say, Tom, it's often, you know, sometimes quite counterintuitive. And, you know, you and, you and Bruce could have the same problem, let's say, in your swing. So you could both come over the top, let's say, as a broad example. I know top, uh, Bruce would never do that because he's, he's, he's a hot player. But I'm um, the other way. I'm, I'm far yeah. too dumped okay. under from the inside. So, so let's, say both, <laughs> let's say you both had the same issue. You know, I would probably fix it in totally different ways for both of you. And maybe a totally different feel, totally different drill, and even totally different vocabulary and tone as well, which I think is very important because I'd need to kind of get into you a little bit and into your psyche. And, you know, as I say, it's all a case-by-case basis. You know, I might be joking with one of you. I might be more serious with the other one. You know, it might be, okay, more fact-based with one. It might be more feel-based with the other. Um, You know, so, again, the approach varies uh, across the board, really. Yeah, one one thing you mentioned or, or that it seems, you know, just having looked at your teaching philosophy um, online that you seem to be quite sort of big on is that is the mind being the glue that, that holds everything together. And it, it got me thinking about a, um, a friend of mine who played college golf at a very high level and, and received some pretty high level coaching as well while he was at it. Um, and although his knowledge of the swing came on leaps and bounds, he didn't actually feel like it made his long game all that much better and and it was his short game bizarrely which he wasn't working on as much which actually improved and kind of kept him competing at a decent ish level um do you think there's a tendency with sort of new age instruction and some of the sort of modern focus on kind of the 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 real science of the swing that you can actually lose that kind of art form and the ability to actually go out under the gun and just sort of focus on a couple of things and remember that it's just a game and you've got to get the ball in the hole in the fewest shots. I bang that drum all day long. It's, you know, there's almost a little subculture of coaches who are like so into the science side, they don't know how to apply it. You know, it's not a science project. It's an artistic golf game. You know, golf's a, 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 it's an ever changing game in a, in a, a, a difficult environment isn't it you know so you've got to be able to solve problems with this thing you know you ain't going to solve problems by worrying about what your your torque force is doing or what your vertical mm-hmm. force is doing etc you do that in practice to try and make it as efficient as possible but then when you get into the arena you compensate and you compete you might default back to a swing you don't like but you, again you've got to develop shots that you can go to mm-hmm. you know so you can still compete and there's one thing i really hate is is people coaches almost doing it for their own good rather than the good of the player, getting so into it and so scientific and talking so sciencey, you know, and, and being a pseudo-scientist to some extent, you know, just plagiarizing information, you know, making themselves look like they're a biomechanist and blah, blah, blah. I'm not a biomechanist. That's an insult to a biomechanist. They've been, they, you know, they've got PhDs in this thing. They've been to college for 12 years. I haven't, 
I can definitely go and talk to them and I can definitely understand what they do and I can definitely get some mm. good information that I can apply, but I'm not a biomechanist. I know stuff about it, right? And I know it to a good level to the point where I can manifest change, but I'd never go around talking to a player like a biomechanist. My vocabulary, I look at myself as the filter, the conduit from all this great information, all this great technology and information. All it does is allow me to make an informed choice. That's all. So from that informed choice, I can then be the conduit that goes, well, you know, this is what we're seeing. This, this is the evidence. You know, it's too much of this, too much of that. Okay, well, you know, in layman, in easy terms, right, all you got to do is get your left shoulder down like that and spin your ribcage faster. Yeah. There you go. Oh, you just change it all. You change the torque, you change this, you change that. You know, I wouldn't go to a player and go, well, mate, yeah. And, and then all, all these online debates, they all have between them, you know. I've just well, that was no- another thing I was going to ask you about, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, it's something that i you know as a as a layman kind of looking in on it uh, and with the advent of social media and instagram and that kind of stuff you can see people instructors kind of get wrapped up in in sort of whether the hands really move out in transition or whether there's such a thing as the shaft shallowing too much and it seems as if you're someone who kind of rises above that a bit and you don't really you can't really be bothered with that that sort of debate because it's just it seems like a competition of of instructors egos really oh it is it's an ego it's a dick yeah. test and you know, yeah. not, if you actually sit them in a room and go, right, okay, let's apply some of that then. I often say, you know, I'd love to have a, a swing change competition, a swing change tournament. I know you never could, but I'd love to because I can factually and evidentially change swings every single swing within five minutes. I'll show you the difference together, not just visually, mm. but I'll show you the track man numbers different. I'll show you the torque forces different, whatever I need to change differently, put in a very simple bite-sized way. So, yeah. you know, these guys can sit there and debate about it and theorize about it, as which they all do, and they're all experts. A lot of them know, know it better than I do. But I know for a fact they can't apply it, and so they just sit there chatting about it and, and trying to make each other look bad or look good or whatever, whatever they get off on. And uh, I don't engage in it. I just can't be bothered with it at all. I think it's the biggest waste of time. And <laughs> it's just a big ego trip. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm all, I've always been about getting in the arena, getting in the trenches and applying it. And a lot of the seminars I do are almost counter seminars, right? I, I open up quite often say, look, you guys have probably been to 50 seminars and you, you could probably do this one for me if you wanted, you know. But what you'll end up having is an amalgamation of ideas that doesn't fit together and no way of applying it. Mm. So the seminars I do are about the application of it. So I do some talks for Swing Catalyst. And my, the whole theme of my talk is the application of science. Yeah. You know, cause you, at the end of the day, that's what you've got to do. You've got to apply it. And, uh, you know, I really, I really don't like this online, you know, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I know Mac Grady says this. So I'm thinking to that. It's like trying to, it's like trying to change someone's religion when you start debating about yeah. it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, think this, I think this works. I think that's, well, okay. It's like telling a Catholic to be a Protestant all of a sudden. You're just going to have a debate, a fight and waste your life and get stressed. So my number one rule is I don't get engaged in it. If you if you really want me to get engaged in it, I'll block you. And uh, I'll just put stuff on there that's quite interesting and factual. And you can take it or leave it. It's as simple as that. I'm not there. I can teach 50 different swings to 50 different players. I can tell you that. I know swings from shut to open to one plane, two plane, one axis, two axis. I'm, I'm involved with quite a few studies of of leg dominance at the moment how shoes affect your swing is a really interesting thing we're doing and again it's not opinion based it's fact based so we've had you know a manufacturer donate three pairs of shoes we've got the same guy on the swing catalyst uh, 3d motion plate 
We got him to whack balls in three pairs of shoes and just looked at the data. The facts are one of those pair of shoes made him swing better than the other two pairs. That's outrageous. Shoes affect what you do. And uh, a lot of people are wearing, especially young kids, are wearing the, the, the sneaker style, uh, tra- uh, trainer style, right? So the heels raised and the toes down. So the sprinting, based on sprinting shoes, a lot of the kids are wearing nowadays. Um, and we found in a lot of cases that gets your, your pressure moving onto your toes too early in your transition. And can Shank City. No, I can do yeah. it from there. Yeah. And we see a lot of yeah. with kids, they early extend, they don't spin properly because they can't. They've, they've locked themselves in. Mm. Really interesting story on that. Um, not trying to uh, digress too far. Um, was uh, Ricky Fowler had a great year one year, and the, the, the Dr. Scott Lynn uh, worked with him a little bit on the, on the Swing Catalyst 3D motion play. And um, he played great one year. Then next year he played poorly, and they couldn't figure out why. And it turns out that Puma had sent him some of those high tops basically, where he, and with Velcro around the ankles. And he's a cool dude, so he wanted to look cool, right? So he's wearing these, like, Puma high tops. Well, they stopped his dorsiflexion in his legs and his ankles. He could not jump. He couldn't roll his ankles like he used to. He's, when they put him on swing cat, he was like a different person. His wow. pressure face was all over the place. His vertical force was low. His jump force was low. And he took his shoes off. All of a sudden, bang, he looked all right. So, you know, we're at that point where we're matching stuff to, to people's, uh, you know, uh, uh, really fine-tuning it, really. And, again, I don't get any debate because, you know, what is good for Ricky Fowler might not be good for someone else and might not be good for Tom, might not be good for Bruce. And, you know, if I teach a certain type of swing to, to Ricky or a certain type of spring swing to you guys, you know, a, a method teacher of being so entrenched in one way to mm. do it is the worst thing you can do because you're going to have – out of 100 people, you might have two you help and 98 you screw up. So, you know, there's uh, there's definitely more to it than you think. And I think, you know, the, the, these coaches, are, again, you've got brilliant information, some stunning information out there. But how you apply it, how you put it together, there's not much information on that. And a lot of it is getting in the trenches and doing it. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of them just rather sit behind a keyboard and, and, and slag everybody off, which I, I don't think is the way forward. When you, um, when you have... Um the amateurs come to you and I know you're, you're, you've got your online swing coach that you can access at your website where people can send in their swings and you analyze it. Um, when you, I imagine what you get when you have people come to you is the, the end goal is they want to be a lower handicap. I imagine, uh, on the whole, um, do you, do you find there are any commonalities between, um, between amateurs that you see that, there are certain ways that you can you can make pretty big improvements pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, easily. All I I don't look at how pretty a swing is. I look at the functionality of it. I look at how it fits together. So quite often, poor swings don't fit together. The, the sequence is not right, which is where the force stuff is really good because you can say to someone, "Hey, you've got way too much horizontal force. Like, I don't like too much mass movement, for example." And there's little checkpoints and reference points that help. They give you some sort of mental template. So, for example, you know, by the time the lead arm's parallel going back, um, you know, you don't want to have moved the mass more than, say, an inch, but you will need to have moved the pressure 75% in the trail foot because you need to start lighten the lead foot and, and make the trail foot heavier. And then, you know, all good players, when they get to the top, as their lead arm's getting to, say, 11 o'clock, they are already recentering their body and moving their pressure by the time the lead arm's going back. 
And you don't see that in amateurs. When amateur players, they go back, everything kind of gets to the top, and then either the arms start down on their own or they just kind of hang there and everything goes together. We don't see that. All the elite players, as they're going to the top, recenter and move their pressure and their mass. So by the time the lead arm's parallel again, coming down, the mass has moved three inches that way at least, and the pressure's now 75% in the lead foot at least. So, you know, the timing and how it goes together is... Is, is the glue that really holds a swing together. And uh, so I don't see that in a lot of amateurs. I see very poorly timed swings, but w- really with a lot of misinformation to some extent, you know, everyone gets told to turn, which is the biggest load of crap ever. I've never, never used that word in my life. You know, turn, well, that's just a loose turn, you know, where the body goes mm. too early and then the arms... It's more about tilting, yeah. Yeah, you've got to create an angled or, as you say, a tilted coil is what you've got to do. So the rate of coil relative to the arms is absolutely crucial if you want to create a sequence goal swing. You know, if you're stood there and you say, okay, honey, turn, okay, well, your body gets there before the club, and then the club has to catch up, and then your body goes again and leaves it all behind. So, you know, it's all sequence stuff that I work on with with, with tour players as well, actually, but um, with a lot of amateurs, just the old-fashioned stuff, some of the myths, you know, head still, head down, swing slowly, you know, keep your left arm straight, you know, turn all that it's absolute crap and uh you know i can think it's quite often you get someone who turns early and all the other stuff they create no torque you know you just say to them hey just just feel like you don't move and just set the club and then move into it fast they just go i mean the speed goes up 10 miles an hour like that and the swing simplifies itself it stays on a better track you know because often the club coming off track is, is is a reorganization of a really poorly sequenced action so you know, you, do, you don't want to, you want to talk it together and glue it together like a catapult. So it hasn't got time to, to kind of throw itself around really. And just to finish with a couple of um, quick fire questions, if you wouldn't mind, um, I know you've been very generous with your time. What is your favorite event um, as a coach on tour that, that you enjoy going back to year on year? British, British Open, easy one. It's just the best tournament in the world in my view. Um, you know, I went as a kid, I love everything about it. The little yellow sign as you go in there gives me goosebumps still. The AA signs you see on the road. As soon as I see my first one, I'm like, oh. I actually managed to uh, to, to get one of those signs, actually. And uh, Well, I've got two, actually. I sent one to Nick Faldo mm-hmm. in his bar. <laughs> and uh, I've got one in my office, actually, and he signed it for me. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that's the best tournament in the world, in my view. It's just special. It, it, I love the amateur side of it as well. I love you know, a, little, a little amateur, a little club pro, or someone you know down the roads playing in it. You know, it's so cool. The family's there. You can see the, the practice next to Tiger Woods and the, the one ask resort rapper. They don't want to look too too uncool. And it's just brilliant, brilliant. You know, St. Andrews, you know, at night, there's someone playing football on the 17th fairway and stuff like that during a major. You know, it's just absolute genius in how quirky it is, but how professional it is at the same time. And and just the, the conditions and how good a player you've got to be to succeed in that, you know, it's amazing. There is a lot of luck in, in the British Open, I will say that. Um, you know, it, it, you have to get on the right side of the draw, I tell you. Mm. you get on the wrong side of that draw, you're going to struggle. And final question, um, if there's one skill in golf that you had to pick above above all the others um, in terms of, you know, uh, the biggest sort of bang for your buck, as it were, and you, one skill that you were to encourage your players to develop, what would that be? Putting. Bottom Interesting. Putting. Okay. You can putt it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk okay. about the disparity between top 10 drivers and top 10 putters, but that is, um, 
that's a that's an interesting counterpoint to to make to that. No, I talked to Phil Kenyon, and you know, yeah. he's a brilliant putting coach, obviously. And look at the stats. You know, putting all day long. If you can putt, you're going to be all. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. You've been very generous. Um, and uh, we'll try and catch up with you soon, sometime in the future, maybe. All right, man. Stay safe, and hope people will be listening to this out of the pandemic soon, and we'll look back on this period as as uh, part of our history, definitely. And uh, as I say, good reevaluation time. So, get out on the golf course, get playing, enjoy it. Brilliant. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having. All right, guys. Thanks for having you on. Have a good day. Watch this. 